Well, good morning, everybody. It's so nice to see most of you this morning. In this weird transitional, not summer, but not fall or cold yet, it's, uh, but it's, it's going to be a nice day. The, the leaves are gorgeous. Uh, we did a little driving around yesterday, and it's just a nice time of year. Uh, children's Church, it's time for Sawyer, who was inquiring if this is time. It's a time for Children's Church, if parents and kids are so inclined. So this coming Wednesday night is our annual church budget meeting, Wednesday, uh, 6 p.m. Um, we have this uh, every year, which is what makes it annual. Uh, we go over the, uh, the church budget for the next year. Our, our fiscal year runs November through October, so this gets us right up to our November start for um, the next fiscal year. Uh, and a, a couple interesting things to talk about this time, so if you can make it out, that would be great. Uh, Sign-ups are on the table for the Harvest Banquet, or they will be next week, I guess, if I read this more carefully. Are they there now? Okay, sign-ups are out there for the Harvest Banquet. Um, we, it's just a big meal that we share together the week before Thanksgiving, um, and we give you all the opportunity to bring foodstuffs. Uh, anything but salad is welcome. <laughs> And as part of that this year, uh, this sounds weird. Is it just me? No, it's not you. Okay. Yeah. Um, I knew as I asked that question, it was going to be a problem. Uh, part of Harvest Banquet this year is we are going to uh, let all of the kids, or as many as want to participate, um, we're going to get together and let them make the crafts, the uh, decorations for tables, um, and so we'll have children involvement, um, and and once Harvest Banquet's over, then the kids can take their own decorations home and use them for their own Thanksgiving table or whatever. Uh, and there, there's a, is there a sign-up sheet over there? There's a sign-up sheet now if you want your kids to participate. Um, and so write down their name and their age, because we're going to have crafts for older kids, probably some welding and some wood turning, and then uh, some crafts specific for younger kids as well. Um, I think that's all uh, I have to say before we get started. So... Let's pray before we jump into our text this week. Our gracious Father and God, we thank you for the chance to gather here this morning for uh, a beautiful morning, a beautiful time of year. We thank you for the, uh, the wonder of creation that we see all around us. We thank you for your love for us, knowing that this world was, was created, crafted specifically for human habitation, and we are grateful for your ongoing love and concern um, and uh, provision for us. Um, we're thankful for the gift of your word and how we get to spend time going through to see what, what you have revealed to us about yourself through these uh, apostles and writers of these early letters. And um, it, it's a remarkable legacy on which we can draw and, and gain wisdom and knowledge. And, and Lord, I pray that as we go through it, it just helps, us, helps draw us all closer to you uh, and give us a better foundation upon which we can grow into spiritual maturity. Open this up for us this morning that we hear it with our hearts and our minds, and then we figure out how to put it into practice in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're continuing our study in the book of Colossians this morning. Uh, we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 1 and move straight on into chapter 2. 
But to make sure we deal with this text as it ought to be done, as was uh, hopefully intended to be, we need to briefly review the overall context for today's text. Um, And you remembered it last week. I'm sure you all remember, because everything was quite good last week. So I'm sure you all remember we talked about how important context is, where we looked at just a part of verse 24, where it sounds like Paul is kind of having to bat clean up for Christ. Uh, Paul is suffering for the afflictions that Jesus somehow lacked or missed. But in the broader context of the whole verse, it becomes clear that Paul was actually suffering for the sake of the church, also known as the body of Christ. So Paul was just continuing the mission that Jesus had started. He wasn't completing the mission that Jesus started. Jesus suffered to, to birth the church. Paul suffered to help keep it alive and growing. So context matters. So we've gone through this, this opening, most of the opening chapters so far, and Paul's gone through his opening remarks. He, he's expressed his joy over hearing how well the believers in Colossae are, are growing and advancing their faith, and then he encourages them to keep it up. Keep at it. Keep bearing fruit. He says, keep walking in a manner worthy. Keep increasing in the knowledge of God. Keep increasing in your love and obedience to Jesus. And then, uh, just in case there's any doubt or confusion about which God he's talking about or which particular Jesus maybe he's referring to, Paul gives this rather amazing overview of the Jesus that he is talking about. Verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1 give us kind of this resume Not complete by any means, but this resume of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He's the image of God. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who delivers us from darkness into light. In him, the fullness of God dwells. So this all contributes to Paul's big idea for the letter, which is why we've called the series The Supremacy of Christ. This idea is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus alone is absolute, ultimate, unsurpassed, incomparable, predominant, and preeminent. And Paul's very specific in his description of Jesus here because he's writing to this church in Colossae. And like a lot of churches in the area at that time, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting some cult member or some, some weird temple. Or there, there's so many competing religions in town. Uh, uh, Paul wants to be sure that this, this church understands there is no God like Jesus. There's no other God who is both hands-on in creation and yet is still hands-on in our puny little daily existence. He's the only one. So stay true to this Jesus, Paul says. Hold fast this is, what, this is his message to the church. And, and, and this Jesus of ours, he goes on to say, he's made his redemption, he's made his messianess, his salvation. It's now available to everyone, to all who willingly receive it. That's part of the mystery that's now been revealed, that Jew and Gentile alike are welcome into the kingdom of God. Jesus offers us life, and not just a better life now, but he gives us the hope of glory. He gives us the promise of eternal life. Paul has said a lot already in the early parts of this letter. And he goes on to say that that this this message that he's delivering, this Jesus for whom Paul suffers and toils and teaches, in in order for it to be the real Jesus, to be the true God, he has to meet these conditions, not just one or two of these. There are lots of other gods in antiquity that might meet some of these criteria. There are none that meet all of these criteria. 
This is what sets Jesus apart from all other gods. So if we add anything to this, or if we take away anything from this description, we're talking about a different Jesus. Now, one quick thought before we jump into today's text, and this has to do with the idea of the mystery. Paul mentions throughout his various letters, he mentions mystery something like 21 times in his various letters. And more often than not, I mean, four times in this letter alone, more often than not, um, it has to do with this idea of redemptive history. This is a big deal in Paul's letters. The mystery was an, an important development in the redemptive history of the church. And in most uses, the mystery was that the Gentiles are now allowed access to the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. Which frankly begs the question, for me anyway, maybe it doesn't bother you, but it begs the question for me, why did God need to keep a mystery? Why was it a secret? Why keep it hidden for so long? Well, I don't know. I don't know completely. I don't know probably all that's involved because God still works in ways and times that we don't understand. But I think there are a couple of things for us to consider. Number one is that we know that God initially made a covenant to work through and bless Abraham and his offspring. That was his initial, his initial plan. So Israel was the favored nation. They were the chosen people, but they continually rejected God. We know the pattern of the Old Testament. They're in, they're out. They're in, they're out. They're up, they're down. They could not hold fast to their part of the covenant. And they were given lots of time, lots of opportunity to repent and return to the Lord. So that it can now be argued that the Lord exercised extreme patience with the nation of Israel. He gave them time. He gave them lots and lots of time and lots of opportunity to get in line with his plan, to get in line with his will, and to be the vehicle through whom this redemption would come. So we have this kind of prolonged, unambiguous display of God's faithfulness faithfulness and patience towards Israel. I think that's one reason for the delayed revealing of the mystery. God is proving himself faithful. But of course, he knew all along what the outcome was going to be. He knew all along that the nation of Israel would never return to the covenant the way it was intended to be. So the Lord was going to offer up this plan of redemption to everyone. And and a redeemer was needed. A, A sacrifice was needed on our behalf. So Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, he came to earth. And as a result of his sacrifice, made once for all people, Gentiles are now included in God's plan of salvation. Which I think gives us perhaps one more reason for the concealment of this mystery. And that is, if the mystery or the plan was made known to everybody prior to Jesus' arrival, then I think Satan and his minions would have done everything they could to derail the plan. They wouldn't have, perhaps they wouldn't have embittered the hearts of the religious leaders so stridently against Jesus. They would, they would have tried to affect or change God's plan in some other way. They wouldn't have strategized and manipulated the people into killing Jesus, which is the basis of our salvation. But the miracle of resurrection and redemption was kept hidden. So not until after Jesus' resurrection was the mystery revealed and made known to Paul, among others. Whose mission it was, was to make the truth of God fully known to Jew 
and Gentile alike. Now, Paul's job is to make this mystery known to everybody. It's no longer a mystery. That's where we pick up today. Chapter 1, starting verse 28 through chapter 2, verse 5. Him, Paul is referring to Jesus. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. <clears throat> so we're talking about Paul's mission here of, of making this mystery known. Um, he referred to this mission last week's text, verse 25. He says he became a minister according to the stewardship he received from God. This, this is a, a commission that was bestowed on him. And his mission, we, dis, we discussed, was twofold. One, apparently his mission was to suffer. Yay. Uh, and two, it was to make the word of God fully known. So when we think about the idea of, of making the word of God fully known, it kind of gives us a couple of possible implications here. One is that he is teaching and passing along the entire revealed word that God has given to him, the full word of God, especially this unveiling part, but also he's to make this word known to as many people as possible, to include as many people as possible. So Paul's mission is to share the word of God in its entirety and to make this word known to as many people as possible. So here Paul says, him, or Jesus, he's talking about, Jesus we proclaim. Paul is on this mission. He's doing what he's been called to do. And the Greek word proclaim here also means something like uh, report with conviction. It's the same word that's used in the second chapter of Acts, where the apostles proclaim about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Now I think we can all safely imagine that they weren't just saying, People, we have something to report. Uh, Jesus has come back from the dead. I think it was a little more excited than that. I think they were, they were pretty excited. It, it, it was a proclamation. They were, they were reporting with conviction. They were animated in their proclaiming. So proclaiming is not just the sharing of information. It is reporting with conviction. Excitedly revealing something of importance. The same Greek word here is sometimes translated as preaching. So Paul says, we preach Jesus, warning everyone. Hmm. Now the word warning here also has the sense of admonishing or stridently teaching. It's instruction with feeling. So we're getting the sense of what Paul's talking about, right? He, he's on mission and he's excited about it. He's teaching something that he's passionate about. So Paul is preaching and teaching passionately and enthusiastically. Some even have referred to this as, as Paul preaching prophetically, but more in the New Testament truth-telling sense, not in some of the Old Testament future-telling sense. Paul is proclaiming truth. He's excited about truth, not in the 
prophecy of, you know, people get all nutted up about Jesus appearing to me as a cardiologist or whatever. We're not talking about that kind of prophecy. He is sharing truth, boldly, loudly proclaiming truth. You know, not Jesus is going to come back on Thursday, October 21st, probably halftime of the football game, although I can't quite get that, that impression. It's not that kind of preaching and prophecy. Paul is passionate about the solid delivery the biblical delivery, the, the word that's being revealed to him of God's revealed truth. But this word warning, it, it implies this is a serious teaching. You, you need to pay attention to this. So Paul says his job is, is not to just drop this prophetic preaching truth bomb and walk away. He says we proclaim truth and we warn everyone, so we teach them about what they've heard. I'm sharing truth and I'm trying to help you understand it. So Paul and the other men he is training, they're preachers and teachers. It's one thing to proclaim and warn. It's a whole other thing to teach and follow up and help people understand and figure out how to apply it. This is the only example I could think of, and it's not a very good one, so I'm just going to tell you that up front. This is not a good example. But let's say you are an unbeliever and you walk into this church. In fact, this is the the first time you've been to this church. It's the first time you've been to any church ever. You walk into church, and I lay out this. I have prepared this good old-fashioned fire and brimstone, pulpit-pounding kind of sermon. And part of that sermon includes things like, you know, God is real, and he must be worshipped, and Satan is real, and hell is real, and you're going to end up in hell if you don't accept the substitutionary atonement offered through Christ, which is made possible due to the duality and hypostatic union of Jesus. And if you're not regenerated and and reconciled and renewed and restored, you're as good as toast. Amen. Let's sing just as I am. Now, that may well have been a proclamation of truth. I mean, nothing I said was false. I seem sincere and passionate. But if you don't know what substitutionary atonement is, if you've never even heard the phrase hypnotic onion, if, if regeneration is just something that lizard tails do, then my passionate proclamation, no matter how truthful, was of little help to you. What you need now is some understanding, some, some clarifying, some teaching about what all of that means and why it's important to you. So Paul saw his ministry as encompassing, as encompassing both of these things, preaching or proclaiming the truth of the gospel and then helping people figure out how to understand it and how to live it which is interesting how most of his letters are structured. We've talked about this going through the other letters, right? The first half is always orthodoxy. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to understand about this Christ and this salvation. And then the second half is, and here's how you need to live it. You need to understand this so that you can live it out appropriately. So Paul was more of a missionary than just an itinerant preacher. He, he, he arrived in places, and he tended to stay there for a while, especially if he was locked up in those places. Um, but he, he was preaching and teaching along the way so that he could develop these people with these spiritual truths, and he could help them develop into mature believers. That's his goal. That's what it says here. And the word translated as mature can sometimes mean complete or perfect. He's helping move them towards perfection. 
That's Paul's goal, to help, help move these spiritual brothers and sisters towards spiritual perfection, to make us all better Christ followers. And, and we know from Paul's other letters that he neither teaches nor expects absolute perfection. He doesn't teach or expect absolute submission, absolutely perfect Christians. We saw this in Philippians 3. He's talking about righteousness, specifically the righteousness that comes from Christ. And Paul says, not that I've already attained this, this righteousness, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies, ahead, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul admits that he's not perfect. He certainly doesn't expect us to be perfect in our Christian walk, but he does think it ought to be our goal. It ought to be something we're striving for. A healthy understanding, a right understanding of our gift of salvation ought to drive us, to compel us to be more Christ-like. It ought to inspire us to be holy because our God is holy. But we also understand that this side of heaven, we're not going to attain that kind of perfection. In this life, we are always striving, but never quite arriving at perfection. We strive for an increasing level of spiritual maturity. We press on. He says it twice here. We press on. Don't look back. We look ahead. We press on. We press on towards sanctification. We press on towards spiritual maturity. And the implication is we press on. This is not always a cakewalk. It's not always easy. We all know that full well. But this idea of pressing on fits with what Paul is saying in Colossians. It gives us the impression of pressing on is sometimes it's toil. Sometimes it's struggle. We struggle for maturity in Christ. And, and Paul feels it too. His, his sense of mission, Paul's sense of, of purpose even, is bound up in our level of maturity. How well are the churches responding to Paul's teaching? He has a burden for them. So the preaching and the teaching that Paul does on our behalf is often laborious. It's a struggle for him. Sometimes the word toil means to be tired, to grow weary. It's a popular word this last 18 months, this weary word. You're just worn down. And I'm sure Paul felt this probably more often than he lets on. But notice he says, for this I toil for your spiritual maturity, that's why I'm toiling. For this is, this is why I'm working. I toil, struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. I think Paul gives us a great little sneak peek and insight here into his, his own spiritual innards. What's going on on the inside? We're, we're well aware of Paul's sufferings for the church, and we almost always think of them in terms of the physical sufferings he's had to endure. But here he gives us just a glimpse of the spiritual and emotional toll this takes on him as well. And he makes it clear that on his own, he doesn't have the staying power. He doesn't have the energy for this mission. But with his energy, with Christ's energy, with his power, him, the one we proclaim, Jesus the Christ, with his energy, I can press on. I can continue to toil. I continue to struggle. Now, 
honestly, I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to say this next part because it can sound a bit, I don't know, self-important or self-pitying. That's not my intent. The, but here's the honest truth. In, in, I spent 22 years in a highly stressful and demanding industry. In the fresh produce industry in California, you're always harvesting somewhere every day, you're planting somewhere every day, you're packing produce almost every day, you're getting it out to on, on trucks and to department stores as, as fast as you can because, you know, food spoils. It's got to go. It's stressful. And there have been several times as a teaching elder or pastor for 18 years now where I have looked back at those highly stressful produce days longingly. There have been times, a, a time or two for sure, where I was prepared to throw in the towel. I just, I couldn't handle anymore. I didn't have the energy. I was done. And invariably, in short order, the Lord came to my rescue. It was in, in comments I received from people just the next day who had no idea what was going on. It was confirmation that I still had a mission. I couldn't just deny it and walk away from it. I really, really wanted to. And I began to sense and, and feel the power and the energy of the Lord kind of invade, for lack of a better word. I, 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 I got a, a renewed calling to the mission or a renewed desire for the kingdom. And I don't have an adequate way to explain it. It just, except that it was his energy and his power. And I finally had to go, all right, I get it. I will continue the toil. And, and so I'd like to be able to say that I considered it all joy. <laughs> I'd like to say that I always rejoice in my sufferings. But I do not. I have not. I do think I have gotten better over the years at not getting rattled, not getting as sidetracked. But there are some days, like Paul says here, where, where I toil and I struggle, and I know that's true for Al as well. I mean, there are some of these texts which are hard to prepare and even harder to preach. Because sometimes we know what the reaction is going to be towards you, and sometimes you know this is all aimed at us. They're just hard to preach. But then the energy and the power of Christ shows up. And so I, I, just, I say this to ask and encourage you, if you're not already, regularly pray for your elders, please. Al and I get most of the FaceTime because we do most of the preaching, but the other men in our leadership team, Ben, Tim, Caleb, and Grant, they labor on your behalf as well. They deal with these extra burdens as well, so pray for wisdom and energy for all of us that his energy would work powerfully in us. Paul continues in a similar vein of toil and struggle in chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, for those I have not yet met face to face. We know that Laodicea is just a few miles up the road. And Paul struggles, he says, for those that I have not met face to face. He describes his ministry to them as a struggle. And then he gives several highlights of the struggle and how the struggle takes place. But first, I don't want to overlook kind of what, what is unspoken here, and that is that throughout Paul's ministry, Paul has met many, many, many believers face to face. He's met an awful lot of people. He's been to an awful lot of churches. And they have not all been gracious receivers of the word. 
He's had a number of supposed Christian brothers and sisters who have maligned him. They've attempted to diminish his apostolic standing. They've questioned his motives. But notice, that's not even part of the struggle he's referring to here. Instead, he, he, he leans into the energy and the power of Christ that allows him to, to continue, and he focuses on the task at hand, the mission to make the word of God fully known. He just is able to discount all of that other stuff. And to help the true believers move forwards toward maturity, which looks in part like, he says, here's how, here's how I'm going to help. Here's, here's, here's our, our end goal. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want the church to be knit together in love. He wants them to reach their spiritual potential, not quite perfection, but moving close to perfection and maturity, at least as close as they can get to fully understanding and receiving and appreciating the riches of God's mystery, which is Christ. Or as he said last week, we saw it's Christ in you. And, and, and the you is all you who believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is open for everybody. It doesn't matter your, your ethnicity, your geography, your, your bank account level. It doesn't matter. All those who name the name of Christ. This, Paul says, this is why I toil. This is why I struggle. This is why I preach and teach, so that you may know Christ, the Christ, the one I was talking about in those last couple of paragraphs back there. Not some random, also-ran, second-rate little G-God, but the Christ I described for you earlier, the supreme God, the one in whom is found the treasures of all wisdom and all knowledge. And then he makes a very interesting point. He says, you need maturity. You need an, interest, an increasing level of perfection in your faith. You need to understand and know this Christ so well so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, I find this real interesting. I mean, Paul is preaching and teaching. He's, he's warning here. This is an obvious warning. Paul is worried about these believers being seduced or led away by plausible arguments. And plausible just means fine-sounding. That that sounds okay on the surface. Persuasive, it's a well-crafted argument. But the idea here is that this plausible argument has the ring of truth, a basis in truth even, without it actually being completely true. It's intended to deceive. It's intended to delude and lead people away from truth. And what's most interesting about this is it seems pretty clear that Paul is writing to the church, and he's writing about these plausible arguments, and it seems like pretty clear he's talking about false teachers and false teaching within the church. Later he talks about the philosophies of men. That's all, that could be a whole other thing. Here he's talking about plausible arguments. He, and it seems like his focus is on those false teachers within the church. I think Paul is less concerned you know, about that local Colossi guru who was, had a group of people worship, worshiping ahead of cabbage named Ralph. Fine, they can do whatever they want, they're fine. He's more worried about these false teachers within the church who are making it sound like they're teaching Christianity, but it's actually leading people away from doxological truth. Teaching that deceives or deludes. This was a problem. And it was a problem then, and, you know, for all of our highly evolved, progressive, all-knowing, modern humanity... We are just as easily deceived today. 
we still fight any number of false teachers with their plausible arguments from within the church. If you don't believe me, we're going to name just a couple. We're going to look at some of the plausible arguments that continue to be problems within the church. Just to help us discern what are the treasures of Christ, as opposed to what are plausible arguments of false teachers. So as we go through these, see if any of these maybe sound familiar to you. The first up is the emphasis on prosperity. These are teachers who place an extraordinary emphasis on prosperity as a necessary consequence of your salvation. That is, if Jesus loves you and you love him the right way, you will be rich. It, it, it's necessarily so. That has to be the case. If you have enough faith, you're going to be rewarded with riches. Which means, if you're not rich, you are lacking in faith. Your, spiritual, your spirituality is suspect. I mean, Jesus is a guaranteed payout. Scripture says, have enough faith, you'll be rich. Paul addresses this specifically in 1 Timothy. He referred to these teachers as depraved people with depraved minds who imagine and teach that godliness is a means to gain. It was wrong teaching then, and it's wrong teaching now. But they had just enough out-of-context scripture to make it sound plausible. Just enough half-verses scattered throughout the Bible to make it sound like it's a plausible argument. And people continue to be deluded by it. Next up is what is called the hyper-grace movement, or sometimes it's just the grace movement. This is basically the teaching that Christ died once for all, and that sacrifice allows us immunity from all consequence to every sin. All sin is covered by grace. So, we can do whatever we want. No need to confess. No need to repent. The book of Jude hits this. He talks about the teachers who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. First John says if we confess our sins, that seems to indicate that we are to continue to confess our sins. And when we do, he's faithful, he'll just, he'll forgive our sins, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul has a couple things to say about it in the book of Romans, too. But this teaching was wrong then, and it's still wrong now. Which is interesting, the next one that still kind of comes up from time to time is antinomianism. It's kind of related to hypergrace. It's kind of the flip side of that coin, but with a slightly different emphasis. Hypergrace says... Grace covers all sin. Antinomianism uh, literally means against the law, and that teaches that there is no law to break. There's there's no moral code for us to to obey because Jesus fulfilled the law. So we don't have to obey any kind of law. And it, it eliminates any kind of moral code or moral law from God. In practical terms, uh, they says that, that that Jesus set us free from the law, and so we're free to break it. There is no law to break. So we can, again, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't apply to us anymore. It fails to recognize that Jesus set us free from the bondage of sin. And he calls us to holiness. How can holiness exist if there is no morality? 
if there's no standard of morality. Again, Paul leans heavily into this argument in Romans 3. This is just part of it. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul points out how those kind of work hand in hand. The law and grace work together. We don't discount one because we've got the other. Another one, the deification of man. There are so many ways this shows up in our culture. Through um, evolutionary teaching, man is the pinnacle of whatever evolutionary process exists. Um, it's a little harder to find uh, because it comes at us in a couple of different ways. Through the word faith preachers like Kenneth Copeland and, and Frederick Price, they teach that, that man is created in God's class. We're just little G gods. We're not, we're not quite big G, but we're little G gods. We can have God-like faith. We can call things into existence. That's the point of word faith. We can just speak. And if we have enough faith, then, then things will happen the way we, we, we expect them to. Like wealth, for example. We can live as sovereign beings. It shows up in, in the teaching of uh, Joel Osteen, who, who says we can live our best life now. Because it's all focused on us right here and now. We're, we're the ultimate importance in the universe. But I think it's much more dangerous and much more subtle and much more deceptive in the theme of any number of current contemporary worship songs. Songs that celebrate me and my response to God rather than glorifying God himself. It's, it's the gospel of emotion that makes us feel good rather than causing me to consider how much I struggle and toil, how much I still battle sin on a daily, hourly basis. And I'm still not yet where God wants me to be. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Not make himself into little g-gods. There are lots of others, um, lots of more plausible arguments that some might be inclined to believe. Um, the last one I'm going to hit on uh, is challenging the authority of the Word of God. Um, and again, this can come in many subtle forms. It's, it's any teaching that challenges or questions the authority of the Word. Anything that challenges or questions the authority of God. Oftentimes, it just starts off with things like, are translations accurate? You know, it's been translated so many times, do we even really know what God's intent was? You've probably all heard that argument before, over and over and over. And if we don't know for sure that they're translated right, then how can it be reliable? How can it be accurate? And, and even if it is translated, let's say, close enough, how are we to understand it? Is it fable or is it fact? Is it a metaphor for teaching or is it a manual for living? What about those places where it's contradictory? We've all heard that before, right? What about those places where it's contradictory? Now, I would submit that some of these are actually good, plausible questions. We should seek to find answers to those questions. But more often than not, people end up asking the question because they've already assumed there are no good answers, or at least no answers that suit them. So they're just questioning the whole validity of the Word of God itself which then makes it easier to question any specific within the Bible. Like, did God really say, thus and so, whatever the issue is we're talking about? Did God really mean 
that he created just male and female? What about the spectrum in between? God couldn't have meant there's only two genders. Does the Bible really affirm the sanctity of human life, or are we just reading into it today, whatever our particular cause is? So challenging or or denying the authority of God's word, God's revealed truth begins to erode the very foundation of all truth. Last week we discussed the... uh, the Church of Sweden, and how that, that, that same-sex married lesbian bishop has called for crosses to be removed from the Evangelical Lutheran Church. And she further asked that, that churches create these Muslim prayer spaces to be set up that were, were facing Mecca to make these churches inviting for all, all worshipers. And I briefly mentioned last week, I, I submit this did not happen overnight. This was a process. It started with a church that made government the head of the church rather than Christ. And then at some point the church decided that that scripture was authoritative, but kind of on the same level as government edict. So if the Bible and government had different views on, say, the only real gender-specific role within the church, that of a pastor, then the government gets the edge as final arbiter of gender roles within the body of Christ. And so the Lutheran church anointed female pastors. And then the church decided that the Bible was wrong on the role of women in church. Perhaps it was wrong on the role of women altogether. Perhaps maybe even the genders of women and men are wrong. Maybe they're not as black and white as the Bible makes it seem. And while we're at it, if, if, if genders aren't really spelled out clearly in the Bible, we can't really trust it on that, then maybe salvation isn't really a Jesus-exclusive construct either. So let's open up the churches for anyone who believes in anything and call that worship. Creating safe spaces for Muslims who outright deny the divinity of Jesus. So in the end, we place other authorities above the Bible, and we decide that God's word ought to live up to our standards rather than reordering our lives to live up to God's standards. Beware plausible arguments. And by that I mean, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be concerned when people ask you questions. Truth always stands up to scrutiny and honest inquiry. Lies will duck and cover and obfuscate. But as you diligently search for answers, include in your search, start in your search, God's revealed word. In which we find, Paul says, in which we find Christ and all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. That's where our search should start. We don't need to be afraid of plausible arguments, but we need to understand their potential power to lead astray. Paul understood the power of plausible arguments because he was struggling and he was toiling against them. He was trying to keep people in the right orthodoxy, in the right frame of mind. On behalf of the church, his fellow servants, he's trying to hold them accountable to the word, the fully known word of God. And he says, oh, how I wish I could be there with you. How I wish I could see you face to face. For though I'm absent in the body, I'm with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order. And by that, Paul means, I rejoice to hear that you're living as you should. Your life is in order. 
You're living your lives according to your faith. The firmness of your faith, the conviction of your faith is exemplified. It's, it's highlighted, it's tested and proved in how you live your life. By the order in which you live out your lives of faith. As we prepare to join in communion this morning, it's important for us to consider just how ordered our lives are. Do people see us as living out our faith? Do we get reports from people saying, boy, here you're really killing it for Jesus down there. Uh, keep at it. Keep up the good work. Or do people see us as inconsistent in our walk? Have you ever been talking to somebody and you mention, oh, yeah, I was at church on Sunday. Well, you go to church? Ooh, that's painful. I mean, it's never happened to me. <laughs> but... In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls out the church in Corinth for how they become too accepting of sin. He warned them that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin impacts the whole man. He says, so clean out the old leaven so that you can be a new lump. Not an altogether flattering term, but you take the meaning. We need to take spiritual inventory once in a while. We need to make sure we're confessing any sins that may be lurking about. We need to repent and move back towards righteousness so that when we partake in the symbolic flesh and blood of Christ, we don't profane it or cheapen it with our unrepented sin. I mean, we can't in good conscience celebrate the sacrifice of Christ and his grace by cheapening grace. 1 Corinthians 11.27, Paul wrote, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'm going to pray in a minute. We're going to have the worship team come forward. Um, they're just going to kind of play instrumentally for a few minutes. The ushers will pass out the bread and the cup. And we're just going to allow this uh, few minutes for quiet reflection, for some self-examination, for some confession and repentance. And then we're all going to take communion together. Um, so just hold on to it for a few minutes. Everybody got your assignments? All right. Lord, again, we're grateful for the opportunity to gather here together as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. And uh, we understand as we move forward into this time of, of sharing in communion, we understand, at least as best we can, um, what this truly represents, the, the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Um, and Lord, I pray that we approach this communion with, with gratitude, with sincerity. Uh, and I pray that in these next few minutes, Lord, that your, your Holy Spirit just kind of works us over and, and reveals to us any unrepented sin, any, any issues that may be lurking about that we need to deal with. Um, Lord, that we come to this, this table in a worthy manner. We thank you for your overwhelming love, your overwhelming grace, and your extraordinary patience in all of our lives. We have all benefited from all of those things. And I pray that as we uh, go through this process of examination and reflection, Lord, it just causes us to, to dig in deeper, to, uh, to keep striving, to keep moving forward towards maturity.